1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review. All things Zoomer worldwide, I'm Libby Zneimer. The need for charitable services has never been greater, but donations are declining because of the pandemic. And how will restaurants change when they're finally allowed to reopen? I talked to food writer Corey Mintz. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Bonnie Henry, BC's beloved provincial health officer, has written a book on her experience during the pandemic that will be released in the new year. The title, Be Kind, Be Calm, Be Safe, Four Weeks That Shaped a Pandemic, is taken from her regular tagline at media briefings. The book was co-written by her sister Lynn, who is the publishing director of Knopf Canada over the six days Henry has taken off since COVID struck. It hits bookshelves on March the 9th, and Henry is donating her advance to charity. It's not the first time she's written a book. In 2009, she released Soap, Water, and Common Sense, the definitive guide to viruses, bacteria, parasites, and disease, which, by the way, was featured here on Zoomer Radio. The pandemic is stealing our holidays. A new study by ADP Canada finds half of working Canadians will be taking less or no vacation time this month. A third say that it's because of the restrictions. Health experts warn this can lead to burnout and encourage people to take time off to unplug. Spurred by growing isolation during the pandemic, TELUS launched a program this week that provides free smartphones to over 2 million low-income seniors in Canada to stay better connected. Seniors receiving the Guaranteed Income Supplement also receive a reduced $25 a month rate along with the new phone, with no contract or setup or cancellation fees. TELUS officials say the pandemic has highlighted the growing challenges for lower income individuals, with seniors most at risk. I get no it's the ultimate rock star Christmas present. 77 year old Rolling Stones frontman Mick Jagger has purchased a nearly 8,400-square-foot Florida mansion for his 33-year-old ballet dancer girlfriend. The real estate company says Jagger put the title for the $1.9 million home in Melanie Hamrick's name. They share a four-year-old son named Devereaux. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. There's less than a week left to make a tax-deductible charitable donation for 2020. Normally, nearly two-thirds of Canadians would be scrambling to get those contributions in before the deadline. But pandemic financial pressure means fewer people will be donating, and those who are able to give will give less. I talked with Bruce McDonald, CEO of Imagine Canada, about a survey on the state of our giving.
2: Back in April... About 35% of organizations were indicating that the in, the, uh, the demand for their services was on the rise. That's now risen to 46% kind of in, in uh, November. And so almost half of organizations are saying that more and more people in their communities uh, are relying on their services. And at the same time, 68% of them are indicating that uh, they've seen a decline in donations since the onset of the pandemic. When we talked to Canadians, knowing how important the holiday season was, um, you know, we, we found that uh, you know 51% of Canadians are going to donate this holiday season. That's actually down from what it normally is. Normally, about 62% of Canadians would, would give over the holidays, and those who are planning to give are planning to give less.
1: Would you put all of that to the pandemic, or are there other factors like the weed charity scandal?
2: 71% of those who are saying they're going to give less are citing COVID-related financial difficulties as the reason. And when we had done some polling in the late summer uh, around the impact of, of the We Charity story, um, there was sort of a, there was about 50 of people said it did raise questions about the governance, transparency, and accountability practices of charities, but 6 in 10 said it wasn't going to affect uh, how they view their donation habits.
1: 36% are saying they'll give less, and on average they will give $317. Uh, How does that compare to what people normally donate?
2: If that holds true, that would be about a 40% decline in previous giving levels. Um, so it's it's fairly substantive. Um, you know, we are seeing areas where there are some increases, but um, the fact that people aren't attending special events uh, because they don't they're not operating right now. Um, they can't necessarily do that impulse giving that they've done in the past where they might drop um, you know some money into a coin box or a kettle while they're out shopping, or even in some cases participate in things like toy drives if they were a commuter and, and are taking a toy into work through their place of employment or, or on their way as a commuter. Um, so there just seems to be also fewer direct opportunities where they're they're getting engaged and in fact being asked.
1: Are the kinds of charities that Canadians want to support this season, has that changed?
2: Certainly, some uh, parts of the charitable sector—those uh, that uh, are place-based gatherings, whether they're arts and culture institutions like theater or, or orchestras, or those kinds of things, or sport and recreation—whether um, it's YMCA's or boys and girls clubs—who have really been hit hard. Um, many of their business models have um, ticket sales or membership fees, and you know it's hard for those to continue when the, the services um, have been significantly disrupted. Um, We have seen, you know, great support for um, causes like food security, mental health services, domestic abuse, those kinds of things, but demand has also risen.
1: A lot of the events that charities normally have are either cancelled or moved online. Do you have any sense about how those are going in terms of fundraising?
2: anecdotally from talking with the leaders of charities. um, I mean, they are having some success, but it's certainly not the same.
1: One of the things that I've seen is that a lot of charities never upgraded technology because donors really don't like to give money for that. And that really hampered their ability to work during the pandemic.
2: Uh, Absolutely. And I think that... um, What we're seeing now with organizations who are struggling to be able to provide their services or raise money online has been in part a result of the way funding, the funding community, uh, for quite some time, um, has, you know, looked at organizations. There's been this kind of cost of administration bucket that donors of all kinds um, have felt more reticent about investing in. And yet at a time when organizational health, the ability to have digital infrastructures, staff that know how to do this well is needed more than ever. That's kind of been an area that's been underinvested in for a very long time. And you know, one of the things I'm actually hopeful coming out of this pandemic is that people, um whether it's individuals, corporations, foundations or government, will look at this and say, one of the learnings from the whole COVID nineteen thing in twenty twenty was that yes, it's important to invest in programs and understand whether whether they work or not, but it's also important to invest in the organization itself so that has the strength to withstand these kinds of um, fundamental disruptions to their business models. Otherwise, the organizations won't be there, and those services will disappear completely.
1: Bruce McDonald, thank you so much, and Merry Christmas.
2: Same to you, and thanks so much for the opportunity.
1: That was Bruce McDonald, CEO of Imagine Canada, a charity whose cause is charity. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Most of us are looking forward to the time when we can dine out again. But how will restaurants change?
0: You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca.
1: Are you looking forward to enjoying a meal out? It's a simple pleasure that many of us took for granted before COVID-19. But with many places forced to close up for good, what will the post-vaccine, post-pandemic restaurant look like? I talked with food writer Corey Mintz.
3: We've seen restaurants near us and far pivot to what they have to do to survive. You know, it's not the next phase of their evolution. It's just trying to keep the doors open, trying to keep people paid, trying to keep people safe. Uh, in terms of the, the fundamental long-term impact, the, the first and most lasting thing that we're seeing that we're going to see is mass closures. You know, Too many restaurants are not able to transfer what they do into a box to go, or they're not able to make money doing that. Um, in the early days of the pandemic, in, in March, we heard you know, 10% of restaurants never going to reopen. And that jumped to 25 and to 50. And the the Independent Restaurant Coalition in the States is estimating uh, that something like 85% of independent restaurants are not going to survive this. So I'd say that's the biggest seismic shock.
1: It's interesting, you know, uh, the category that I would go to, which I would call beloved neighborhood restaurants, that people, first of all, want to make a point, of supporting that have a lot of the personal touch and that also, you know, it's in the neighborhood. You can pick it up or they can deliver it. How does that uh, loyalty play into it? I think it's
3: huge. I, I think, uh, you know, I was talking to a hospitality professor who put it to me that when you hear about this restaurant in your neighborhood that's struggling, that may not make it, you want to do everything you can To make sure that it survives, but I don't know how much rallying there's going to be when people hear that a local Boston pizza franchise uh, is going out of business. They don't have the same connection in the community. They even if it's where you always took your kids after their little league games, they're disposable. They're they're replaceable as opposed to that neighborhood restaurant, as you described it, that is a place that builds memories and you know maybe knows your face or knows your name and has has hosted public events uh, maybe campaign for a local politician um they are irreplaceable and while they don't have the same resources as the big chains uh, executives who can spend their day uh, uh, researching new, new strategies or uh, access to capital They do have the emotional investment into the community, which uh, can translate to the public's willingness to say, let's all go order takeout or go pick up from this restaurant because we want them to be there on the other side of this thing.
1: Like so many other things, the pandemic has accelerated changes that were already on the horizon. And even before it hit, you were writing about how the restaurant industry has to change and will change.
3: Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest change on the horizon was the shift to off premises dining, which is sort of the, the catch all term for takeout and delivery. You know, over the last decade, we've seen the rise of the third party delivery apps, which, um, despite never turning a profit and losing hundreds of millions of dollars have grown their revenue and their market share. And, you know, many restaurants were kind of, for a number of years, refused next about it and said, "You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to lose money at giving away 30% commission. Um, I don't want my food to be sh- packed into a duffel bag, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And eventually, they saw those sales slipping away and felt like they had to participate. And the prediction was, "This is just going to increase. Consumer demand expects everything to be delivered to our doors, so this segment of the market is going to increase." And people kind of talked about a five-year timeline. You know, full service restaurants need to get used to the idea of adapting to the majority of their revenue coming from off premises dining. And in March 2020, everything changed and that needed to happen within days or weeks. And, you know, when we talk about adaptability, it's the people who were experimenting with some form of that or with the ghost kitchen model who were able to sort of do something. Uh, and those that weren't that were quickly died off or those that were carrying too much debt or never were able to make that much profit. were just, you know, we're just eviscerated.
1: What about the status of the celebrity chef?
3: That's one that I hope is going to be absolutely extinct by the time this is done. Um, I don't want to generalize, but uh, I think that that's an idea that day is come and gone uh, I mean, I was unfortunate, it was regrettably there at the dawn of the, um, the chefs are the new rock star trend uh, that was at the beginning of my, my writing career. And that was really lamentable because rock stars, with all due respect, uh, to what they do for a living aren't really known as being great employers. Um, and I apologize if there's some out there who always insist that their ta- staff take breaks and, you know, pay for the dentist. Um, but it's not really a great model, and putting those people up on a pedestal um, really enabled a lot of exploitation on all sorts of levels. But from my perspective as a former cook, primarily at the wage theft, which is really rampant in these uh, large chef-driven kitchens, I think the cult of personality around the chef, the bubble has popped a little bit, and in part because of the pandemic, because I think a lot of people have been out of work. People who, you know, worked away in these restaurants, both front and back of house. And for the first time in years, had time off to really reflect on their experiences and the way that they were treated. And, and a lot of these people have become very vocal about how unfair uh, and exploitative the system is. Uh, I hope that conversation continues and that the type of behavior Uh, taking advantage of people, paying them horribly, demanding far too much out of them, uh, and yelling at them at the same time is something that is totally unacceptable on the other side of this epidemic.
1: When you say wage theft, do you mean taking tips that were intended for servers?
3: Yeah, tips and how they're divided is one form of wage theft. Another is, you know, there's various models for paying cooks. One is The day rate and a typical form of wage theft is paying people a day rate, but expecting them to work 10 or 12 hours a day. And when you divide the actual amount of hours they work, it's less than minimum wage. Or paying them an hourly rate, but expecting everyone to come in two hours early and work off the clock every day. That's the sort of thing that's absolutely endemic in high-end kitchens.
1: So what would you like to leave us with on this?
3: Well, I think it's time to re-examine our relationship to restaurants. I think they mean more to us than they ever did before. I miss going out to eat. Um, I miss that social interaction. I miss that certain magic of being in a room full, uh, of people sharing a different but sort of communal experience, uh, much like going to the movies. I just think it's time for us to kind of go back to that, um, question of, who's profiting, and what kind of business I am supporting, and we shouldn't be afraid to ask some of those questions. You know, the the concern we kind of developed 10 or 15 years ago about where our meat came from, it's time to start asking those questions about how employees are treated.
1: Corey Mintz, thank you so much.
3: A pleasure speaking with you.
1: That was food writer Corey Mintz. That brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. And for this year, I'm Libby Zneimer. Thanks for joining me today. Happy New Year. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with All Things Zoomer worldwide.
0: Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive Producer, Moses Zneimer.